Colossians 3 and verse 19 is where we'll be this morning. Colossians 3, 19, continuing our study in Colossians, celebrating God's provision for us. He has transformed our lives. He's changed us from the inside out. He has given us uh, women context for fulfilling his sanctification plan in our lives, women's lives, and that is, as we read in verse 18 of Colossians 3, uh, he spoke specifically to wives or women who are married, and then he'll speak here in verse 19 to husbands and then to children and the parents, fathers specifically. Let me read these verses for us and get them in our minds, and then we'll look at them very carefully here. Colossians 3.18 says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. We looked at that wonderful verse last week, verse 18, being subject, wives, be, be subject to your husbands. And of course, we realize that it's not just wives are who, to, who are to submit to their husbands, but all Christians are to submit one to another. Uh, Ephesians 5.21 says, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And so there are different ways that we do it, different ways that we submit, but it, essentially it's not so much an outside action, but an internal mindset or a, a, a thought process that I consider myself as less than, not less than in terms of value or less than in terms of potential, but but less than because I'm thinking of the other person as more important than myself. Philippians 2 teaches that. We seek a, a united mind. We seek to have unity. We seek to have peace in our relationship. And the, the specific way that a wife does that to her husband, is submitting to his headship, to his leadership, to his authority. Now, and you think, well, that what, there, there are a lot of dangers with that. Yes, of course there are dangers with it. In the same way that verse 19, there are dangers with this. Husbands, love your wives. There are no exceptions to that. Husbands, love your wives except for this situation. Or, that, or when she's doing this, obviously you need to know. He says, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Isn't it possible for a wife, a contentious wife, to disobey God's command and not submit to her husband? Well, sure, but it's also a danger, a false outworking of God's salvation for a bitter husband to disobey God's command to love his wife. For a bitter husband to disobey God's command and not love his wife. That is a great danger, and so that if the husband is loving his wife and not being embittered against her, then the likelihood of an abuse or a tyrannical uh, headship or, or rulership over her, because she is to submit to him in the ways that we looked at last week, that would be that is a protection against the uh, the difficulties or the sin that might come. God is speaking to to wives, as we saw last week in verse eighteen. He's speaking specifically to husbands. Husbands, you have an expectation. This is how you need to live with your wife. There is much in Scripture, unfortunately, much, many poor examples of husbands uh, not really loving their wives or, or not exercising their God-given headship over them in a good fashion. We see it right at the beginning, Genesis 3. What? The woman gave to her husband that fruit, apple, oranges, grapes, peaches, I don't know what it was, and he ate. What, what are you doing listening to your wife? And that was the issue that God had. Because you listened to the voice of your wife and not to me, cursed be the ground and you're going to die and all these bad things are going to happen. 
but God provided grace and, and covering for them, even in their gross sin. We see that sin undermines, and not just undermines, but turns on its head the God-given order that we have in our lives. I think I mentioned this last week. Whereas God is the head of the man, and the man is the head of the wife, and husband and wife, or male and female, are to rule over creation, the whole thing turned on its head there in Genesis 3. Here is the creation, the snake, right, talking to the woman, deceiving her. She gave to her husband. He ate. He disobeyed God. She's li- he's listening to her, and they are totally disobeying God, not submitting to God, not honoring God as, as head and creator and, and Lord. And so we need to come back to that God-given order of events. This has nothing to do with value, that somehow the man is more valuable than the woman or the woman is less or is inferior to the man. No, it has everything to do with order and how God designed things to be. Will things be different in the resurrection? Well, sure, there is no marriage in eternity. And we think, well, that's a bummer. No, not necessarily. God is good. He doesn't withhold any good thing from us in eternity. We should not say, well, I wish that I was back on earth. And No, we will be thankful. We will be thankful that we can even be counted worthy, not in our own selves, but worthy through Christ of sharing in that resurrection, of sharing in that wonderful situation of real life. The very great danger here, here is that men, husbands, would not love their wives, that they would be embittered against them. We want to make sure that we understand these things in a good way because, again, there are so many poor examples of marriages in Scripture, but we do see a wonderful example of marriage, and that is the relationship of Christ and the church. Whereas the church submits to Christ in all things, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. What does it mean to love your wives? It doesn't mean just have romantic ooey-gooey, uh, um, emotional kind of a thing, even though that is appropriate and, and necessary. It's much more than that. It's not just that. That is one part of the whole package. The whole package is how does that man selflessly, sacrificially serve his wife? Uh, love can be described that way, that love is a selfless, sacrificial service. Bodhi describes love as this. It's an act of the will, accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. It's an act of the will. That means it's volitional. We choose to love. It's not just, I don't feel like loving her right now, so I'm going to go and do my own thing. I'm going to let these vile words go out, and then I'm going to go play golf or go whatever out in my man cave. No, true love is an act of the will. You choose to do this. It is accompanied by emotion. That is to say, we don't need to become somehow uh, you know, dispassionate fellows, and I, you know, I'm doing this out of my uh, sense of obligation to you. You're my wife, and therefore X, Y, and Z. No, it's accompanied by emotion. Happy, good, pleasant emotion. The same emotion you had when you asked, would you please marry me? Would you please marry me? And your tears coming down your face. And, and these things that, that help us to carry us forward even. But even when the love is gone, and, and at least the affectionate emotional love is gone, what is what remains? an act of the will, and hopefully the, that emotion will come alongside, come come uh, afterwards. Some people describe or, or picture the relationship between will or volition and emotion as an engine of a train and a caboose. The engine is not the emotion. 
you let the, the uh, engine, the, excuse me, the emotions drive your behavior, drive your words. Uh, that's going to be a heap of trouble for y'all. And that will be, that will not end up good. Oh, but I'm so joyful. No, you're not always so joyful. Let me just tell you, you have issues. You cannot let emotions which rise and fall and gall, that will not carry you forward. Let emotions follow and act to the will, your volition. They will come along with you, but don't, don't get the order reversed in that regard. Love is an act of the will. It's accompanied by emotion. What is its purpose? What is it about? Get whatever I can for myself. Uh, somebody said it this way, kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I think speaking more truth than they would be willing to admit, that the greatest love is learning to love myself. I think there's a song that celebrates that. That's not what the greatest love is. I like to per- I like to change the words of that. The greatest laugh is learning to laugh at yourself. Because, you know, if we take ourselves too seriously. Good grief. Do you know who you are? But the greatest love is not learning to love yourself. It's learning to love other people. Now, of course, that's the second greatest love. The greatest love is loving God. And then loving people as a result. But love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. God, in other words, in the words of Genesis or John 3.16, rather, God loved the world in this way. He sat in heaven. He thought happy thoughts about us. He, he emoted toward us. He, he just celebrated the, the, no, he worked. He acted. He sent his son. God loved us and he sent his son. It is, a, it leads to action, not for his own self, which is to say, even with God sending his son, it's for his own glory. And we think, well, is that even, is that righteous for God to desire his own glory? It is only right for God to desire his own glory. He is the only one worthy of praise and adoration and glory forevermore. And yet he acted for his own glory out of the best interests of us, saving us, redeeming us from from what? His wrath. God is glorified in his wrath just as much as in his grace. And yet he wanted to save some out of his wrath. God is glorified in these things. He acted on behalf of us, sacrificing himself. Christ, why should the measure of a husband's love of his wife be measured this way? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her. The church that didn't understand. You remember how Jesus was there with his disciples, and there was only one, perhaps, disciple there at the foot of the cross. That was John, because Jesus spoke to him, says, you know, the relationship of of Mary and trusting Mary into John's care. John was there at the foot. But where were the other apostles? They scattered like sheep without a shepherd. And yet for that church, that beginning church, Christ died for us. And as we sang, uh, even though he has left us on earth, it's not because he's some, we're, we're less in his affection or his attention or his intention. He has gone to prepare a place for us so that where he is, he wants us to be. He wants us to be with him. That is the kind of love that motivates or should motivate husbands loving their wives, wanting to be with their spouses, seeking what is best for them. We have studied about marriage over the last several weeks here about that marriage is not just a, a relationship of convenience. It's not just something that we enter into or out of. It's not something uh, willy-nilly or, or based on how we feel on any given day or week or month. It is not based on, uh, hey, I like you and you like me. Let's just go have a happy family. That rhymes, but it's not good, good theology. No, marriage is based on a covenant, a promise not a, even a private promise, a public vow before witnesses. It is a uh, promise to be faithful to that vow, but also to that person. 
It's not just, I'm committed to the idea of marriage and I'm on my fifth one because I really love marriage. Whoa, no, that's, you don't, you're messed up. You need to love the wife, the woman that God gave you and the husband that God provided for you. There's much in scripture to celebrate this fact of love. And of course, we're close to the the the, the holy day of, of love, the affectionate kind of love, the, the sweet kind of chocolatey love of Valentine's Day. And yet love can include that, but it's much more. If you just let your emotions drive your relationship, you're going to be disappointed and you're going to dis- disappoint others. Thankfully, God has provided this as this statement here in Proverbs 19 and verse 14 as a a a fallback, not a fallback, but a, a great promise that when the going gets tough, we go back to God's word and we realize that Proverbs 19 and verse 14 says, house and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a wife who has insight is from the Lord, from Yahweh. A prudent wife, it might say, a wife who has uh, wisdom, has counsel, has skill, not just uh, in needlework or sewing or cooking, or but but skill to know how to live and how to relate to her husband, how to raise children, and how to be a blessing to her neighbors, as Proverbs 31 would say. God gives a prudent wife. And so we realize, not like Adam, the woman you gave me, that wasn't a, a statement of thanksgiving. That wasn't a, a blessing. You know, God, thank you for the woman you gave me. Now, he was accusing her. I didn't do it. It was the woman you gave, you gave, I mean, it's not even so much accusing the woman, it's accusing God. You chose wrongly for me. You should have made somebody else out of my rib. Man, that hurt. But this, this sin that now we're in, it's her fault, it's your fault, you did this. And God says, no, no, no. It's your fault, you were not deceived like Eve, you disobeyed me outright. Here he says, husbands, love your wives. My father-in-law always would say this, he says, men, do yourselves a favor. Love your wives. You think of doing yourself a favor, love your wives. Yes, because we kind of um, rudely maybe say this, a happy wife makes a happy life. Fine, whatever about that. But it, do yourself a favor, love your wife. And you think, well, I've got to think of her as more important than myself. Yes. She just asked me, we have this long-standing question at night. Did you lock the van? We're both in bed. And then Mariah says, did you lock the van? And sometimes she goes to lock it, and sometimes I go to lock it, and it's fine. But are you willing to do that? Are you willing to lay down your life right now? I'm going to go, nice and warm and cozy here, but I'm going to go. And you don't even have to go outside to the driveway. You have these clicky thingies that you just push a button and beep, beep, and fine. But can you love your wife even in that regard? Can you wash the dishes? I was reading something. It's a powerful book, counseling book, is, is written in a kind of a fictionalized sense, but he talks about a man who, you know, I work 40 hours a week, and when I come home after working 40 hours a week, I expect, you know, the dinner be made, I children to be in order, and the house to be clean, and I have a beautiful wife, and, and, you know, I work 40 hours a week, and I'm tired when I come home, not to mention that what's the wife been doing all those 40 hours you've been gone, and the, the other hours beyond that. But I've been working 40 hours, and, and so I really am entitled to this way. Or you're in a mode of thinking that is about me, not in a service mode for your wife or for your children. Being served mode is what God says, no. Husbands, love your wives. Christ laid down his life. And we think, well, whenever I have that opportunity to lay down my life for my wife, I will do it. I'll take a bullet for her. But will you wash the dishes? Will you lock the van? Will you take care of that dirty diaper? 
boy, that child's been sick. What's the deal with this child? And will you meet her needs, even though they're unspoken? You can just see it on her face. Will you choose to love your wife? I don't feel like loving her right now. I've had a bad day. I have this little bit of a tinge of a headache. I think I'm going to go spend a couple hours in front of the TV. I'll see how they go. And wife, you just keep doing, you keep doing what you're doing. That is not what God is commanding us. Husbands, love your wives. But I work all the time. And she, what does she do at home? I don't even know what she does at home. Husbands, love your wives. But these exceptions, you know, where, where are the footnotes of this Colossians 3.19? Except in this situation, when she's being rude and nasty and contentious, you better dwell in a corner of roof than with a, a contentious wife. So she's being contentious. So I'm going to go dwell in my corner of my roof. It's really nice. Man cave. I'm going to go and lock the door, keep all the children out. That's not acting in love. Love your wives. Love your wives. How do we love our wives? You know, there's a tremendous passage uh, that teaches us all about love. It's 1 Corinthians 13. And maybe you've heard this experience or this uh, way to read it. This is verses 4 through uh, 7. Instead of reading love is patient, love is kind, what if you put your name in there? since nobody's volunteering themselves, I'll put my name in there, that Scott is patient, Scott is kind, is not jealous, does not brag, is not puffed up, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek his own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love, Scott, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love, Scott, never fails. Can you read that and say that's what love is? Now, there are many more examples or implications of love that we can read about in Scripture, but whoa. Once you get those ones, you know, kind of worked out in your life, then we can move on to the other things. But are you patient? It says here, don't be embittered against him. We'll see more about what that is, but part of it comes back to, are you patient? Are you long-suffering? Are you kind? Are you generous with with uh, words, with uh, affirmation, with uh, labor, with... Uh, thinking of your wife as more important yourself. Are you jealous about these things? Are you jealous that she gets to do that or not do this? Or are, are you envious? Now, God is a jealous God, but again, we, so we're going to dismiss this. No, love is not jealous. God is jealous because we're devoted to him. He is God. He deserves all of our adoration and praise. But have you seen me? We're, we're a mess. Husbands are a mess. Wives are a mess. We should not make unseemly demands upon our spouse's uh, affection. That's their choice to to show that to us. That is the responsibility insofar as submission to a husband is not so much an external thing, more of an internal mindset. In the same way, love or this jealousy, it's not an external thing. It's more how do we view ourselves and what kind of relationship do we want to have in this marriage? Love does not brag it is not something that is boastful in myself. You know, I work 40 hours a week. What have you done lately? I mean, good grief. You sit here, eat bonbons. That's the old, you know, old, you know, whatever. Love is not puffed up, thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Love does not think much. And again, humility of mind is not so much thinking uh, less about yourself, that I'm, I'm just a bad person or I'm just this, I'm just, I can't do that. No, humility of mind is thinking of yourself less, you really don't register. Well, I've had a bad day. I have a headache or I have, I, I need to go do this. You think, how can I serve other people? How can I serve my wife in this situation? You can go on and, and look at more of these examples of love, but husbands love your wives. 
Just like submitting, wives submitting to your husbands is not just a suggestion. It's not just a when you get around to it kind of thing. Wives submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives at all times. Think of her and love her selflessly, sacrificially even serve her. He gives this command here at the end of the verse, verse 19. Do not be embittered against them. Do not be embittered or well, there are different ways we can look at it, and we'll look at those, but to be embittered comes back to this idea of what is bitterness. And, and of course, there are bitter tastes. In fact, we at, at our Passover time, we, we share in the bitter herbs, the horseradish, and we get our sinuses cleared out. If you ever have issues with that, horseradish will, will do it. It is a bitter kind of a taste. It's something that gets your attention. It is something that overwhelms your whole senses. It is something that is not a pleasant experience. It's not something that is a delightful thing, unless some of us... Some of you like that kind of uh, bitterness. Somebody compared it to, and maybe, okay, I, I probably have done this too when I was a kid, didn't know any better. You know, the unsweetened chocolate, and your mom brings that home, and you have this big old thing of Hershey's uh, unsweetened chocolate. You think, oh, chocolate, right? And you get a spoonful, and you put it in your mouth, and it tastes bitter. I mean, it's, oh, it says unsweetened, duh. It's not sweetened, it, it's, it's bitter. And you realize, whoa, that's what chocolate really tastes like. We don't want to be bitter in that way. We want to be sweet. In fact, that's the opposite. We can see in Isaiah, Isaiah's prophecy said, there are people who flip what is good and what is bad. We, they call evil good and, and good evil. They will say, this is sweet, but it's really bitter. And we like what is, what is sweet, but is really bitter. And, and there, this totally turns on its head. But this idea of being embittered is not just a bad taste in your mouth. It is something that includes or or shows uh, uh, anger and animosity uh, viewing of that person here in the husband and wife relationship viewing your wife as an enemy she's she never does what i want she's always against me she never likes what my ideas she never uh, uh, you know folds my socks the right way she never does she uh, never and always are usually not good words to have when you're accusing somebody uh, would you like to be, you never take out the trash. You never do this. Well, I did it last week, but you didn't do it for the whole year before that. I mean, we exceptions, we could look for the exceptions, but we want to be people who are sweetly reasonable, speaking reasonable words. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, Proverbs say. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. So if we're speaking truth, it ought to be presented away like the scripture says, like apples of gold and settings of silver, so is a word aptly or fitly spoken. It fits in this mode or in this mood. Ephesians 4 also says about how our words ought to be uh, shared with one another for the purpose of edification. This bitterness or being embittered can become a harsh, uh, kind of reproachful attitude toward that wife. Uh, she is, you know, she is nasty. She's this, and we can uh, bring out our our record of uh, wrong suffered, you know, 1 Corinthians 13 says, love does not keep a record of wrong suffered. Yeah, does not take into account a wrong suffered. In other words, when you keep your, your daily journal at night and you say, dear diary, et cetera, et cetera, my wife did this and that other thing, bullet points, ordered, numbered lists, whatever, and this is all the things she did. You know, God forgive her, and you close it. And then you look back yesterday and say, I remember what my wife did yesterday. That was bad. And no, love does not even write it down in the book. Love, when you forgive, forgiveness, as we looked at, is not just a transactional forgiveness. Sometimes it needs to be that way. Mostly, 90, whatever, put a value on it, percent of the time, we just overlook sin. We overlook transgression. We overlook 
disappointments, unmet expectations. We just overlook it because we're not thinking about ourselves. We're thinking about the other person. Thinking the best of the other person. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. But what about when she doesn't cook my favorite meal on my birthday? That certainly is an exception. And I can be embittered against that or bitter. No. Love. Be thankful. Thank you, honey, for, for bringing that. Thank you for being so kind. Thank you for uh, just thinking of me on my special day and all this kind of thing. But it, it's not about you. It's about how do you show love to this other person. Embittered or being embittered can even get into cynicism and a resolved, settled opposition. She, no. And, and you live separate lives even under the same roof. Maybe we're not separated, maybe we're not divorced, but nah. I didn't expect anything from her. She doesn't expect anything from me. We have just a, a marriage of convenience. And maybe we've seen that in, in uh, our family or in Hollywood or in the pol political office where we have marriages. They can't stand each other. But for a variety of reasons, they will keep up the face. They will remain married and so forth. And, and uh, that's not what marriage is to be about. That's not how we ought to, husbands ought to love our wives. There can be the sense of a, a deep-seated, settled resentment, just a hatred, just a, she, there's a song, I just was listening to it last week. The title of it is, or the refrain is, and it's a good bluegrass song. So uh, it says, um, he ain't never done me nothing but good. You get that? He ain't never done me nothing but good. But a lot of times we think, my wife, she ain't never done me nothing but evil all the time, always against me, always being nasty. Really? Always? No. You get a grip on your own life. You humble yourself. You realize that she's the best thing that ever happened to you outside of Jesus. This is a gift of God. And what are you doing with this gift? What are you doing to celebrate God's kindness to you, his mercy to you, giving somebody? Even in that, that initial marriage, it was not good for Adam, the man, to be alone. I will make, God said, I will make a helper suitable. The idea of a helper suitable is something that comes right alongside and is with you. There's a companionship. There's a relationship. Not like you'd have with you know, um, digital assistant, you know, my, my BlackBerry, even though Blackberries are going the way of the albatross, or not the albatross, the uh, dodo bird. No, they're gone. They're virtual assistant. No, your wife is your nearest helper, a helper specially designed by God to meet your needs and to not just meet your needs, but to help you in the task that God has given to you. What are you doing? How are you stewarding your relationship with her? We can get irritated, we can get mad, we can get savage even, or vehement in our words or in our attitudes or our actions. And God says, no, that's not how it's supposed to be. There are many examples in Scripture about being bitter. And, of course, the bitter taste, you think of the waters of Mara and how God um, changed that, that water to be sweet for them. Actually, there was contention there that was going on. You read about wormwood, that bitter uh, um, plant that is poisonous. and or Not poisonous, but it's, it's actually medicinal. There's some medicinal purposes in it, but it's bitter to your taste. You eat it. And much is made about this bitter kind of a taste. There are folks who are bitter of soul. They have bitterness of soul. And you think... You remember when David, King David, he wasn't king yet, but he, when he was running from King Saul, all kind of people associated themselves with him because he's running from Saul and he's a bandit, he's an outlaw. Hey, let's get all the outlaws together. These were folks who were bitter of soul. They were the outcasts and not because they were doing what was right. A lot of these were criminals and, and 
vagabonds, and, and they were not uh, doing what was was right before the king, and so they're running away from him. And they join themselves to David. Oh, what a motley crew David had. But isn't that what Jesus has in this church business? I mean, we're outlaws. We're running from whatever. We run to Christ, not for we're going to all band together and rise up against the authority. No, we come to Christ realizing, cast away my lawlessness, my my do the, you know, the justice is due me. I'll repent of that and come to find uh, resolution and forgiveness in Christ. There's much about bitterness of soul. Remember in Ruth, uh, Naomi, Naomi is the mama, and Naomi in Hebrew is related to the word pleasant or sweet or uh, delightful. That's why, of course, we name one of our daughters Naomi. And we have another Naomi here who's very pleasant and sweet. But she said when she came back to Bethlehem, her hometown, she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which is related to that word, uh, the, the, uh, the well, which was bitter, the Mara well. And she says, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but Yahweh has caused me to return empty. Why do you call me Know me. Yahweh's answered against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity against me. She says, don't call me sweet, call me bitter, because she was bitter. And yet God, in as much as Ruth, the story of Ruth is about the ancestor, the predecessor of David, it's also about God's kindness to Ruth, or to, to know me, that, that, she, uh, that God showed kindness to her and, and removed her emptiness, gave her a full, I mean, a daughter-in-law, the, the husband of the daughter-in-law gave a child and all these wonderful things. And the ancestor of the Messiah, wow. So God has dealt very tenderly with Nomi. There are other examples as well. But when we get to this idea of husbands, don't be embittered against your wife. Don't be, you know, leave a bad taste in your mouth. Don't be embittered in soul. But specifically, don't be angry. Don't have an animosity toward your wife. Proverbs 14 and verse 15 says, A wise man fears and turns away from evil, but a fool gets angry and feels secure or feels justified. You get angry over some wrong that you've, been, you've suffered at the hand of your evil, nasty wife, and you take security and, and joy in this. A fool gets angry and says, yeah, that's what I deserve. You know, that's what she deserves. She, she, yeah. And no. Do you know that Proverbs 29 verse 22 says, An angry man stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. An angry man stirs up strife, just always causing trouble. Just always dropping little hints of dissatisfaction. She never does me nothing but evil. And, you know, your mother is this way, or my mother, your mother, your, you know, my mother-in-law, and all these. No, no that's, that's wicked, evil speech. A hot-tempered man, somebody who's not patient, long-suffering, long-burning, a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. A lot of times that expresses itself in words. The scriptures say, in a multitude of words, sin is unavoidable, but he who keeps his lips is wise. In a multitude of words, Guess what's going to be expected? Sin. Keep your lips. Put a clamp on your lips. Don't say, even what you're thinking it, don't say that. If it's not edifying, it's not gracious, it's not going to build up other people. There are many th many aspects of being embittered in the Old Testament spe specifically that has re relation to provoking someone to anger. And we think, well, you're provoking me to anger. And we'll see that again with fathers. Don't exasperate your children. Don't provoke them to anger. You're provoking me. No, th this is from the perspective of the one being provoked. I should not be easily provoked. I should not be easily, you, you made me lose my temper. No, she didn't do anything like that. You lost it. You made choices. You were not acting in love. You did not think of yourself as less than for the purpose of this present situation. Humbling yourself, 
uh, thinking of your wife as more important. You're putting your own needs and desires and, and you're 40 hours a week or 50 or 60 or 80 hours of, week, of work a week. And, and can you look at your wife? She's tired. She needs help. You need to communicate. She doesn't know what's going on with your life or, or with their lives together. Talk to her and don't be angry and don't be uh, so, you know, you're provoking me. Don't you provoke me to anger, you woman. No, you don't be provoked to anger. Don't have this bitterness. Ephesians 4 verse 31 and 32 talks about this. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, graciously forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. He says, don't be embittered. Sometimes we can read that like, stop being embittered, or don't be in the habit of being embittered. But here he just says, as a practice, don't be embittered. Don't go there. What reason do you have to be angry with her? She is God's gift to you. You have a responsibility to, if you read the corresponding passage, parallel passage in Ephesians 5, there is a responsibility for the husband to nourish and cherish his wife, to wash her with the water of the word, to speak words of grace and comfort, are not words that are wicked, bitter, blah kind of words, but kindness, compassionate words that are patient. And it's not even so much, I'm, I'm portraying the wife as evildoer, just she can never do anything good. The issue is not about the wife. Just as like submission is not about the husband, it's about the wife. So love and not being a bit, it's about me, about me, the husband, that I have a respect, regardless of what she does, whether it's good or in my perspective, evil, whether she's with me or against me, I have a responsibility to love and not be embittered, not be uh, violent against her. In fact, we'll conclude with this idea because, or at least two ideas, three, can I get five? No, just kidding. Just, just two ideas. What does it mean to have a bitter heart or a bitter soul? Bitterness can be a passive um, attitude, a mindset, as we look, looked at with submission. Bitterness can be a passive activity. Uh, it can be feeling wronged or violated or, or not overlooking wrongs that have been suffered. No, instead we take record of those wrongs. We write them down. We review them every, you know, annual, kind of like you, some of these different online services say, hey, a year ago, memory, and you bring, oh, yeah, I remember that. That was a bad argument. But, oh, yeah, she was wrong, and I felt vindicated and justly uh, whatever. No, we overlook transgressions. What's the opposite of being embittered? Overlooking transgressions, graciously forgiving, solving problems, pursuing peace, humbling ourselves. Another example of a passive or heart attitude is a displeasure, you know, just no praise, no, just always negative against your wife, uh, being gloomy or grumpy or, or being depressed because my wife, she's, she, she's not good for me. No, you thank God for her. You thank God, you trust that he is at work in your life and in hers too, but God is at work in your life to change you, become more like him. Choose joy. A passive heart attitude, negative wise, can be resentment. You know, she's just, I'm irritated. Every time she opens her mouth, just bad things happen to me. You have hard feelings, you have hatred toward her. No, you keep no record of wrong stuff. You forget about these things, you overlook it. You, you are just so gracious and kind. And again, it's not, again, that the wife is so evil and bad over here. How are you responding? She can be as sweet as, as, as honey. How do you respond to it? Oh, she's just saying that because... No, she's saying it because she loves you. She wants to honor you. She wants to respect you. And you're taking it out of sorts and, and making all nasty things out of it. Love her. Praise her. Value her. Don't accuse her. Don't blame her for her whatever or read into things in a, in a bad way. Uh, love her. Be patient. Work hard at loving her. 
instead of being quick to anger, hot-tempered, or uh, prone to just erupt, no, you are patient. You you show your kindness. Just as you have been shown patience and other people put up with you, you put up with your lovely wife. So there's those are some passive or heart attitudes of, of bitterness, but what about some active things? How do we act out our bitterness? Because not just here, maybe your translation says, do not be harsh with your wives. That can be harsh uh, actions or act- activities that we do. We can have rude or demeaning speech. We can make fun of her. We can utter threats against her. We can uh, be uh, hasty in responding to her inquiries, to her questions. We can criticize her all the time, and not just in front of her, but among other people. And we embarrass her. We will say things that we would hate to have said of us, and yet we, ah, we joke about it. No. We encourage our wives. We listen to her. We ask her opinion. We ask. We talk to her, not in a in a top down. You give me your thing, and I'll I'll deny it. Kind of a you know, I'm the I'm the person in charge here. No, we we listen. We draw her out. We try to find out what is going on. And there's a, a businessman who says, you know, I don't I don't sign any contract, any agreement, any kind of anything without my wife looking over it. And if she even has a tinge of, I don't think this is right. He doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. If she has any reservation about what this looks like, he doesn't do it because he respects his wife. He listens to her. He's ultimately responsible for the Lord for the decision, but he values her input. Instead of being harsh to your wife by clamming up or giving her the silent treatment, the cold shoulder, you speak the truth in love. You listen. You you communicate. You draw near. Instead of withdrawing, you draw near to her. Instead of using your strength, I mean, masculine individuals are stronger in a variety of, of respects. Not everybody, without exception, but generally speaking, uh, we can use our masculine strength in very violent ways. Uh, The wicked use of strength. We can be severe. We can be pugnacious. We can resort to physical violence. No, we use our strength to serve her. We use our strength to make her feel safe and protected. There was an example years ago. We had a house that needed a roof, and one of the things that Mariah said was, it makes me feel safe to have a house, a roof, that doesn't leak. And so I was up on the roof repairing the thing and because I wanted her to feel safe and protected. Or if there's a, you've heard about the joke about uh, the, your blinker fluid was low in your car. Some mechanic was trying to pull the wool over your wife's eyes. You know, your blinker fluid is pretty low. And the wife calls, how would you let the car not have blinker fluid? Blinker fluid, there's no blinker fluid. But you take care of mechanical issues. You fix things around the house or around the vehicles. You take care. You protect your wife. Don't use your strength to say, oh, You take it to the mechanic. You do it. You love your wife in that regard. Don't, in bitterness or being harsh to your wife, it would be not giving her the time of day, just being indifferent, again, withdrawing. No, you choose, love is an act of the will, you choose to to draw near to her. But she's fighting and kicking and screaming. Well, maybe not figuratively, or literally, but maybe figuratively. Draw near. Draw near to her. Spend time together. And... Do these other things, speak to her, listen to her, and so forth. Instead of being insensitive, we attend to her needs. We're looking, how, you know, what does she need? How uh, is she cold? Is she warm? Is she, is she thirsty? Is she tired? Uh, looking, you know, looking, kind of like that uh, Psalm. I forget which one it is. It's in the Songs of Ascent. It says, As the eyes of a servant look to her, the hand of her master, so our eyes look to you until you be gracious to us. We're looking. We are God's agent of service to that woman that he gave us. We take care of that person. We attend to her needs. Instead of being a tyrannical authority, instead of making our demands known, we work together. We are gentle. We even lower expectations. 
you know, if, if you want to have this meal at this time, you, you, you know, I understand things are going on. Let me help you. What can I do to help here in the kitchen or take care of the kids or whatever it is? Instead of being mean, rude, harsh, embittered, we are tender. We are considerate. We are compassionate. It's no small task for husbands to love your wives. Do not be embittered against them. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting, as is appropriate in the Lord. God wants us to manifest his wonderful, wonderful redemption in our marriages. And we'll see you next time as we relate to our children. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your grace to us. We know that we are just a mess and we need a Savior every day. And you are the one who redeems us and you change us. And you've given us not just burdensome commands, but joy and peace that we should and could and sh- and will love others, especially in a marriage relationship, husbands loving their wives. Please help us to do these things, not for our own glory, for our own sake, but because this pictures or testifies to Christ's relationship with the church. Please transform our marriages. Please provide for our loved ones, uh, godly spouses, who would be willing and desiring to fulfill these commands, these expectations of marriage, not because they're burdensome, but because, because they're difficult even. And yet you empower us and you have given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places to accomplish your good purposes. Please help us. Give glory to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.